You think about the idea that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. All of these things around us are, are, are gifts of grace by which God is trying to give us these aesthetic experiences that point us back to Him. I think we've lost our sense of awe and wonder at the world. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. In today's episode, our own Nathaniel Williams will talk with Matt Capps on art, beauty, and aesthetics. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first... It's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like news, sports, pop culture, business, all from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about the LGBTQ movement. Hey everyone, I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. In recent weeks, conservative evangelicals have had a renewed debate about the wisdom of navigating issues related to the LGBTQ movement. For example, is it appropriate for a Christian to attend a transgender grandchild's wedding? Dr. Keithley, so many of these questions boil down to this. Should Christians be welcoming and affirming. You recently wrote for the Christ and Culture blog. Talk to us about your thoughts on how to answer these questions. Yeah, it's a great question, and it is certainly a relevant one that so many of us as Bible-believing Christians have to deal with. Um, And what we'll find uh, when you look at those who are promoting the cause of, of gay and lesbians, they will use the expression that a church should be welcoming and affirming. Uh, they'll use both words. Uh, in fact, I can think of articles that I've read, you know, 10 reasons why your church should be welcoming and affirming. Or I've seen articles uh, which would criticize churches that were merely welcoming, but not affirming. And so they're using the expression welcoming and affirming to express a single concept, sort of like, you know, you think, okay, I'm sick and tired, or I'm at home where I'm warm and dry, where you use two terms to kind of express one way of thinking. And so for many of those who are arguing for, are in favor of, of accepting uh, a gay and lesbian lifestyle, or same-sex ma- marriage, or transgenderism, uh, they will use both terms together, welcoming and affirming. And so I think that they may be doing us a favor in that they are highlighting the two terms that really matter. Um, Should we be welcoming and should we be affirming? And what's the difference between the two? Well, clearly Jesus was welcoming. I mean, think of who were considered the very lowest of the low in first century culture. uh, And they were the tax collectors and the prostitutes. What we find is that Jesus received uh, both tax collectors and prostitutes Uh, He uh, associated with them. He associated with tax collectors and prostitutes in a way that are simply scandalous. I mean, they were, it was considered outrageous in that day. And even in our day, whenever you read the text closely, uh, Jesus is having a meal in which a prostitute comes up and washes his feet with her hair. 
there are so many things on so many levels that are just seem to be out of bounds. And yet Jesus receives that type of worship uh, from this prostitute. Um, it was offensive to everyone there. And that challenges us as Christians today um, in, in our churches that we need to be welcoming and receiving uh, those who are um, struggling with these kinds of questions in ways that, let's face it, it'll make us feel very uncomfortable. So Jesus clearly uh, was welcoming. Here's the second question, though. Was he affirming? And I think that the biblical witness is pretty clear on this question also. Uh, yes, he received Zacchaeus, but he liberated him from the bondage of his sin. Uh, yes, he received the woman who was taken in the very act of adultery. And he said to everyone else, uh, he that who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And of course, we know how that ends. And what does Jesus say to her? You know, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And so we find where Jesus receives all of us in our sins, and say, but he saves us from our sins. And he calls us to follow him in a radical way that tells us to say goodbye and leave behind uh, everything that encumbered us before, including lifestyles that are outside the bounds of God's word. So I do think the Bible is very clear that we are to be welcoming, but we're not to be affirming. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit that at times, discerning the distinction between the two is not as easy and not as clear as one might think. I think that um, being invited to attend a same-sex wedding, I think that that one is, is rather clear because um, you know, we we don't want to affirm uh, something that the Bible prohibits. On the other hand, uh, I can think of scenarios where it's not as clear. Uh, for uh, for example, let's say that someone has a son who is in a same-sex marriage, and the son and um, his husband adopt children. So uh, now you have grandchildren, adopted grandchildren. I think it's clear that you want to welcome these children. Uh, how do you welcome the children without affirming uh, the same-sex marriage? That's not as, e as easy a question to answer. And I can think of other scenarios that, that can be very difficult. So what, what I would say is, is that when we are navigating these difficult waters, let's be quick to seek out godly advice. And also, when we see someone who is attempting to navigate this, these difficult waters, let's make sure we give our advice in a way that is encouraging and, and gracious. So I think the final line, line is we can't affirm what God has prohibited, but we are to welcome every person as someone who is in the image of God and someone for whom Christ died. That's very helpful, Dr. Keithley. And we're going to need a lot of wisdom in the days ahead Amen. as we seek to navigate these things. Uh, one final thing before we jump into our Christ and Culture conversation with Matt Caps. A uh, reminder, go to your podcast platform of choice. Give us that five-star rating brief review. goes a long, long way uh, to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Are you equipped to face today's challenges with the gospel? Join us this year for Exploring Personhood, 
a conference that will be held on campus here at Southeastern February the 21st and 22nd, where we will deep dive into topics related to personhood, such as Christian nationalism, the racial divide, technology, suffering, and more, all through the lens of our Christian faith. Tickets start at just $10, and you can learn more at cfc.sebts.edu. We hope to see you there. What do beauty and aesthetics have to do with the Christian life? Today we're delighted to have with us Matt Caps. Matt is the lead pastor of Fairview Baptist Church in Apex, North Carolina. He's also an author, an editor, contributor to several books, numerous articles, and he and his wife, Laura, have three children. Matt, thank you for being with us today. It is great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, Matt, we're going to talk about beauty and aesthetics today uh, because you've done some extensive work, some extensive reflection in this area. Now, you're a pastor. Yes. Most pastors that I know don't have an expertise in beauty and aesthetics. So what made you want to think about these topics? Well, at a very young age, I was um, introduced to, to art, to classical art classes. My father is an artist and uh, uh, just followed the arts all the way through school, have a, an undergrad degree from the university in fine arts. And it's always been just part of my world. And uh, as I went through seminary at Southeastern, uh, it was still uh, on my mind. Uh, I try to explain it. It's almost like one of those programs that runs in the back of your computer that's only seen every now and then. But right. the, the, those questions of, of beauty and aesthetics and art and the place of the faith have always been part of the, the, the ongoing conversation in my journey. So can you define those terms for us? What do you mean when you say beauty? What do you mean when you say aesthetics? Yeah, so beauty, uh, people have gone back and forth on whether or not you can define it. The the classical description called the great theory of beauty would understand beauty as consisting of uh, the harmony of the parts within the whole. So harmony, proportion, unity, what could be called uh, fittedness. Um, Thomas Aquinas would define it as that which is pleasing at the very apprehension of it. And that kind of leads into the idea of aesthetics. Aesthetics is derived from the Greek uh, root, meaning perception of the, the, the senses. It's a general study of um, sensation or feeling. So if you've ever been to the dentist and been given an anesthetic, you understand the existential you meaning. You don't feel. Yeah, you don't feel. Yeah, you don't yeah. sense. Um, in some cases, when it comes to the academic um, studies of it, with the disciplines that deal with beauty and aesthetics, um, they, they, they're often looked at independently. So aesthetics is seen as something that happens in here within me. Beauty is something or thought of as that happens out there within the world. However, within the Christian tradition, um, we have generally held them together as um, interpenetrating one another. So beauty is both an objective reality, but is also a subjective experience. And we hold those two together. So let, let's touch on that a little bit because we've got beauty and aesthetics mm-hmm. over here. And then we've got the Christian faith over here. You're talking like they're connected. Uh, make that connection for us. What does faith have to do with beauty and aesthetics and all that? Yeah, so, I mean, the foundation of the, that connectedness for the Christian tradition would be that God is the, the source and substance of all true beauty. And all beauty we experience within the world, aesthetic sensation, is a derivative of, of him. Um, they, they, if you were to kind of run to the other side of the conversation, I would just say that beauty and aesthetics, they serve as a signpost uh, pointing beyond themselves, um, beyond the experience itself, uh, to our Creator God, who is beauty, um, 
himself. He, he is beautiful in essence and, and nature. And so when we experience beauty in this world, when we experience um, aesthetic pleasure, those things are fleeting moments. Um, they, uh, aesthetic delight always tends to slip through our grasp and we always ache for more. And, and that there's an intention behind that because it's supposed to be, again, a signpost that points us beyond the experiences themselves uh, to the one true God uh, from which they come. So if I were to take what you're saying and think about it in my own life, like if in the spring, go outside, I see the flowers blooming. And there's mm -hmm. a sense of beauty and wonder and awe as I look at that and I think about that. And you're saying, like, when I look at that flower, it's designed by God to make me think about him and want to worship him. Yeah, Jonathan Edwards talked about a flowery meadow being the sweet benevolence of Jesus Christ. And so the, the Christians, if we understand all beauty is derivative of God, coming from God as a gift, um, then all beautiful experiences are, um, you could say, analogical to him. So they, they connect back to him. And this is fascinating to me because all humans recognize beauty, regardless of our cultural upbringing, regardless of our age indifferent to the, the, the level of aesthetic sensibilities we have. We all recognize beauty when we see it. it it's, it's, um, it's, it's apparent in, in the world around us. Um, and as beings created in the image of God, we have a unique endowment to not only enjoy beautiful things, but create beautiful things. So mm -hmm. it's, it's wired within our nature as human beings. Um, you know, so you think about when was the last time your, your house cat enjoyed and reflected on the sunset or the last time your <laughs> your golden retriever composed a symphony it doesn't happen that's unique to humanity yeah. um, and that's why you know you think about the eastern orthodox theologian david bentley hart who he he champions this notion in his book and declares that that beauty is a category indispensable to christian thought so the question I ask um, often is when we look at the Christian tradition, pr particularly within the Protestant world, you know, why has beauty become the theological beast or why has beauty become the Cinderella stepsister to truth and goodness? And Dorothy Sayers, uh, perhaps you've read her, she, she basically went as far to say that there is no Christian aesthetic. Now, she may be overstating the case, but that quote is enough to give us pause and to think, you know, why have we ignored this reality? Hmm. You're, you're quoting a lot of people throughout recent church history, uh, some going further back. Where, where do we see this in scripture? Where do we see this in church fathers or anybody in church history who's spoken to this well? Yeah, I would say if, you, if you're interested in reading um, just, just a, a broad span of church history, I'd point you to uh, Augustine Aquinas. Um, Jonathan Edwards is probably the premier Protestant theologian who has dealt with these categories. And then more recently, within the Catholic tradition, Hans Urs von Balthasar uh, has written extensively on this. I would think if you look at Scripture, there, there, there are many ways I could take this. I'll just pull out three categories where I think um, you can begin your journey in understanding beauty and aesthetics. And one is the doctrine of revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and uh, within Scripture, within Hebrew, beauty and glory are somewhat synonymous terms here. The, the, the beauty of the night sky, its wordless speech, if you will, is declaring the glory of our Creator, but we would not know that apart from Revelation. Hmm. So we read Psalm 19 and we understand what the heavens are telling us. Um, there, there's more to say there with Revelation. You, you could then move to the doctrine of God. If, if all creation is derivative of God and that includes beauty, he must be the, the source and substance of all beautiful things. It's, creation is an expression of 
um, what he wanted to communicate about himself, his nature, if you will. And, and God's beauty, I would argue, is beheld most fully in the person of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. God in flesh. Uh, as Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, you know, look at me, hear me, watch me. This, this is the idea that, that God, Jesus, God incarnate, um, reveals to us beauty, not only in his character uh, and, um, and the miracles in which he shows us the way things ought to be, but also in his sacrifice, which is a, you could say, a, a fitting display of the, the beauty of God and his self-giving for the sake of our relationship uh, with him. Then you can move to the doctrine of humanity. Um, we are created in God's image. Uh, Christ is the agent of creation. He is the archetypal human, if you if you if you will. Um, and, and so, if God is creator, and as His image bearers, we also are sub creators. This gets into the idea of why we have arts and why we have um, people that are craftsmen. We are sub creators. We are taking the the elements of creation that God has given us and creating with them. Um, we mimic God not only in creation, but also in our appreciation of beautiful things. So you think about Genesis when God made the world and declared that his work was good. There is aesthetic evaluation in those words. And so uh, we reflect God both in our enjoyment of beauty and our cultivation of beautiful things. Those are just three primary areas of theological reflection that I think you can, there, there's just a lot of uh, riches there to be mined. Oh yeah, man, that's really helpful. Uh, That's really, really helpful. Thinking about those things and thinking about our own spiritual lives, our own Christian lives, uh, how how does this conversation about beauty and aesthetics, how does that shape us? How does this connect with spiritual formation? Yeah, so uh, I think within, at least within our tradition, Baptists as Protestants, the idea of spiritual formation has been somewhat... um, uh, debated uh, in the sense that it seems, um, as some would argue, more detached from the day to day of every Christian mm-hmm. life. I think spiritual formation is more of a cumulative term for understanding how we are shaped spiritually. Um, now, obviously, as a as a Baptist and as a Protestant, that that is going to be rooted in the Word. Uh, in these debates about spiritual formation, I found a quote by Alistair McGrath that I thought was very helpful. He said that Christian spirituality, and he's speaking of spiritual formation concerns the quest for a fulfilled and authentic Christian existence involving the bringing together of the fundamental ideas of Christianity and the whole experience of living on the basis of and within the scope of the Christian faith. So what he's saying is all of life uh, can shape us spiritually. We are embodied beings that, that, that are shaped by our experiences. Now, spiritual formation really is a conversation between God's revelation, uh, both in the word and the world and our reception, which includes our experiences, our desires, and our imaginations. And um, what what I would say about our imaginations is I'm not talking about uh, fantasies. I'm talking about a particular way of making sense of the world. So you, you, you look at the world around you, the, the beauty that surrounds us, the aesthetic experiences. Again, those are things that can cultivate awe and wonder in the Christian life. And, and you have the word, God's revelation of himself to us that give um, a proper perspective of those experiences that really should be a signpost to worship that should prompt worship of the creator who made these things. Mm, yeah. Let me take this a little bit different direction and, and ask you a question. Thinking about our conversation about beauty and aesthetics, thinking about, just to pick an example, the average modern sanctuary or church building. <laughs> yeah. Like there was an era 
where sanctuaries or, or church facilities, whatever, uh, there was an, an element of artistry, craftsmanship. The, the church I worship in has an old sanctuary from the 50s and there's stained glass windows. You can tell someone put a lot of care into it. By contrast, a lot of the newer constructions today kind of feel like warehouses. Mm-hmm. Are we missing something there? Is there a connection here that, that maybe we should be in how we shape our spaces focusing on beauty and aesthetics a little more than we have maybe in the last couple decades, or, or is this not related at all? I think it is related. I, I, you know, I, I do believe that we can worship God in spirit and in truth regardless of sure. the, the type of sure. building we're in. But I'm reminded of, of Roger Scruton, the late uh, British philosopher. He, he wrote a book on beauty. He also had a documentary he produced on this topic, and he lamented on modern architecture uh, following the Industrial Revolution, uh, where he basically said, you know, our landscape is riddled with stale office buildings and brutal concrete compounds that are soulless and sterile. And I think we understand that. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you, if you look at when, when an area of, uh, of a city is being demolished and rebuilt, um, it's usually those concrete, stale buildings that are torn down, and, and we don't really care much for those. It's the historical societies and the people will rise up in arms, though, when you have uh, a building that is adorned aesthetically, like a, a cathedral or a, a, a beautiful church, that something happens there. That We, we value beauty um, there. And and you've un- I think if you've ever been into a, a wonderful cathedral where you have these soaring arches and um, embellished treatments and it gives you a sense of transcendence, when you move from outside where there may be laughing and talking and you know you, you walk into those spaces it changes your posture there's mm-hmm. a sense of reverence and transcendence so i do think there's something there uh, i think it's something that we can attend to regardless of our spaces just being aware of how um, the aesthetics of the room shape our posture and what it's pointing to um, there there's plenty there i mean that you're speaking into the utilitarian nature right. of our culture where um, we really, our highest goals are, are bottom line efficiency and mm. pragmatic utility. But I think there's something to be said of beauty. When the architects started to, to make buildings where form follows function, we, we lost our sense of beauty. That mm. There's no value there in a utilitarian society. Um, there's also other elements that have played into this. I think there's a fear of idolatry. You have the sure, I- sure. iconoclast movement sure. that where you know, in Luther's day and even with the Puritans where they're destroying uh, cathedrals in, in the cities and um, the, the stained glass windows and the rural churches, the idea of asceticism where we're deeply suspicious of the very things that beauty finds its initial meditation, the body and the senses. Um, you have um, even, even broader than that, the history of natural theology following Karl Barth, where natural theology obviously is something that will always hold a secondary place under special revelation, but um, some would go as far as to say that these realities have no point of contact with the divine. So we have a lot of work to do. And then philosophically, you have the deconstruction of the transcendental realities of truth, goodness, and beauty, uh, where you know you, you pull those three apart, the, the unity of the whole. Um, beauty turns towards sentimentality, truth towards unattractive historical facts, and goodness towards stale morality. So you have all these ideas that converge and have riddled the landscape where I think modern Christians are, you could say, uh, deformed or or, or, or they don't have a proper sense of beauty and aesthetics and how it relates to the Christian life. Um, And I think you bringing up the modern buildings is one reality that, that points back to that.
man, there's a, we could have a whole other conversation. Yeah. I'll make it going down that road. That's really interesting. There's probably also a financial element too. I mean, yeah. things are expensive. Yeah. And so there's a stewardship element, but it is, it is worth asking the question. I think, uh, yeah, how can we leverage our spaces to point us to well, those things? Well, you know, we're not in the Old Old Testament temple, but yeah. you think about when when the instructions were given, the artisan was given instructions on how to adorn, and and those, you know, the the, the precious stones and metals. The point was for them to uh, reflect the glory and beauty of God and to give a sense of transcendence of that space. Yeah. There was not a utilitarian function there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good word. Thinking. Practically, yeah. uh, I'm thinking about everyday pastor listening to this, thinking about the mom taking her kids to school or picking up her kids from school. What is this? What does this mean for everyday lives? Yeah, I would say that we. Um, one way to put it would be we need to come to our senses. Okay. You think about the idea that the world is charged with the grandeur of God, and uh, all of these things around us are, are are gifts of grace by which God is trying to give us these aesthetic experiences that point us back to Him. I think we've lost our sense of awe and wonder at the world. So, uh, you know, when I think practically, uh, you, I could say it this way: visit meadows, visit museums. Hmm. Um, I think about a, a walk I took with my daughter uh, when the weather was a little bit warmer in our neighborhood, there's a portion of the trail that kind of empties out into a, um, a meadow where there's a, a little pond and there's a bench there and we just sat. And uh, I tried to help her just kind of pause and reflect on what was around us. And so I pointed out the, 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 the light that was kind of dancing across the surface of the pond and the, uh, the grass that was waving, uh, or you could say dancing at the wind that was blowing through the trees. and. Um, and just help her to, to sense, help her to see it, and help her to just pause and notice it, and then reminded her that these are all gifts of God. These beautiful things, these experiences, are, are ways. Um, you know, she's seven years old, and I said yeah. these are ways that God reminds you that He loves you. He has created this world for you to enjoy, um, and to feel His presence. Uh, it could be as simple as having your children uh, visit art museums, or you know, lay on the floor like I have before with my my middle daughter and listen to. Barber's adagio for for strings, like listen to these beautiful pieces of music and and just talk about them, to give them a sense of awe and wonder at the 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 world, and just the ability for humans to cultivate these beautiful things for us to share with each other and enjoy, because beauty draws us out of ourselves and um, allows us to attend to the world, to attend to others and ultimately to God. And so, I would say when it comes to the pastor, to the mom, uh, to the dad. Uh, find ways to to help your people, your children experience beauty. To pause, to breathe, and and to notice the things around them as um, just gifts of grace from God. And that takes time and intentionality, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it doesn't happen just on the go. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a good word. Um, Matt, in every episode, we have a segment called On My Bookshelf, in which we ask our guests what's on their bookshelf, what they're reading, or maybe a favorite book that they enjoy. So uh, we can't let you go without asking that question. What's on your bookshelf right now? Well, I I just, uh, I'm almost finished with uh, Ross Inman's Christian Philosophy is a Way of Life. And, uh, you know, philosophy not being some kind of impractical pontifications, but uh, um, like he says, a way of life, a way of being in the world, a way of living. And I, f- I found that book is fascinating and uh, well-written, so I would, I would encourage that. Um, I've also been reading James Rebank's The Shepherd's Life. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that or not. He's an English farmer, and uh, he walks through the lifestyle of um, just him being in the tradition of farming in England. 
and uh, a shepherd who is centered on stewarding the seasons that he has given to sustain the family and the flocks, if you will. And as a pastor, I'm, I'm always fascinated with the the, uh, the metaphor of shepherding. Mm. And, and there's you know there's one section of the book where he thinks where he talks about how things in his life are driven by the seasons and necessity, not by his will. Mm. And I think a lot of times in pastoral ministry, it's like that as well. Mm. Um, and finally, I, I just finished um, a couple weeks ago reading again um, Hemingway's *Old Man in the Sea*. Okay. I, I don't know if you've read that or not. not, but, not um, it's a it's a it's a novella about a old Cuban fisherman who hadn't caught a fish in eighty plus days, and he finally lands the big one, this marlin. And over the course of multiple days, he battles the fish. And uh, Hemingway just has a a beautiful way. I mean, you would imagine a whole book on a man in a boat out in the ocean battling a fish. I mean, how could that be enjoyable? But there, there's something about the way Hemingway writes, the, the rugged perseverance of the old man to stay with it. The, uh, the fish, uh, as Hemingway say, it says, he, the fish has fight but no panic in it. And so it's just, he has a way with words. And yeah. I enjoy um, reading him. And then obviously at, right now at church we're preaching, I'm preaching through Hebrews. And so uh, most of my attention is within commentaries and, and Books on biblical theology, as I try to exposit that word for our people. Yeah, that, that's good. That uh, some good books for our listeners to put on their reading list. You're also the co-editor of the Timeless Truths Bible. Before we let you go, tell us a little bit about that Bible and what <clears throat> makes it a unique study Bible. Yeah, the the Timeless Truths Bible. Um, I, I was able to serve as the editor of that, and it's a um, it's more of a devotional Bible published by Thomas Nelson. And what makes it unique? is uh, the notes are in the margins, on, on the side margins of, of, the, of, of each page, and uh, there's one quote for each chapter of the Bible. So it's not more, it's not, not a study Bible in that sense, more of a devotional okay, Bible, okay. but the quotes are taken from all over church history, Irenaeus, um, Luther, Bunyan, Chrysostom, Origen, Calvin, Wesley, and you, you think about these great names that have shaped our faith. Uh, commentary on the text or theological um, sections that explain the text in each chapter. Uh, there, with the, throughout the Bible, there's 46 um, full-page biographies of church leaders that have shaped Christian history. Um, there is the text of some of the creeds and confessions of the Christian faith that have shaped our beliefs for, in, for generations. And there's about, I think there's a little over a dozen um, full-color tip-in pages of artwork um, uh, from the history of Christianity, and they're organized almost from Genesis to Revelation through redemptive history, and they're placed within uh, throughout the throughout the Bible to kind of give you a sense of how artists have have rendered these biblical scenes. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. that sounds really really good. I hope our listeners will pick that up. Yeah. And then you you're all these thoughts about beauty and aesthetics are going to be in an upcoming book. Uh, give us the title of that and when it's scheduled to to be here. Yes, it's called, well, right now it's called Drawn by Beauty, um, Awe and Wonder in the Christian Life, and uh, just turned in the manuscript uh, a couple weeks ago, really, and uh, it's, it's due early 2025 to be okay. released with right. B&H Academic. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, uh, wonderful to be here. Thanks for the conversation. Well, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating and a brief review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.